Hello and welcome to the Manifest Image podcast. The 20th century marked a change in the arts, no longer waiting to be retrospectively defined by critics and historians. Writers such as F.T. Marinetti, Tristan Sara and André Breton took their identities into their own hands. In their respective groups, they laid out their thoughts in structured art theories and released them in a range of artistic manifestos. On this podcast, we pick apart these manifesto-led movements, including the artists behind them and the works they produced. I'm Thomas Greengrass. And I'm Ariel de la Garza. Today, Today, we are looking at Destruction of Syntax, The Wireless Imagination, Words in Freedom. There is some extra punctuation in there that I can't share with you through the medium of audio. No. Um, M dashes. M dashes. <laughs> yeah, literally M-dashes. can. <laughs> yeah. And we do. <laughs> a little harder. <laughs> so, uh, this was published first in May 1913 as an independent pamphlet. Um, but then in June 1913, on the 22nd of June, although that is a multiple of 11, so it's probably a lie, mm. um, it was read out loud at Galerie La Botie, which is where they'd read out many other manifestos in the past. Uh, and then it was published and republished several times in Parisian papers and discussed. In Persian papers? Parisian. Parisian. Persian. <laughs> no, Parisian. Parisian papers. And this translation is by... Uh, Lawrence Rainey, and as always, this was written by F.T. Marinetti, who mm. seems to be the only person we talk about yeah. on well, this podcast. at the moment, for the moment. Uh, I will say that there are alternative translations. Uh, uh, I, one is... I forget now. I have got it. It's not with me, though, unfortunately. So, you know... I've, such a bad person. Wow, he's scolded himself. Robert, uh, it's either Brain or Tisdall. Oh. Uh, Caroline Tisdall, I've done oh, one. Oh, um, oh. um, But yeah, sometimes it's alternatively rendered as a destruction of syntax, radio imagination, or words in freedom. Um, the radio imagination or the wireless imagination is to do with the same kind of thing like they used to call the wireless in the UK, but that was a, the shorthand for the radio. And Which is kind of a longer hand, really. Yeah, well, they didn't the call it the radio. Syllables. They called it the telegraph. No, that's the, that's the telegraph or the wire. Something. <laughs> but um, yeah, this it's it's very much uh, a follow up to uh, the technical manifesto of literature and the a response to objections, which we did in the preceding episode. It happens a year later, and he's had some time to think. This one is far more. Restrained, actually. Uh, he seems a bit more optimistic, but he also uh, starts off... He's, he's softened. He softens his, his stances, and he begins with quite a few concessions. Um, he also uh, rehashes quite a few general futurist sentiments. And this manifesto makes more references to other manifestos uh, than any one that we've looked at previously. It will make explicit reference to the art of noises, uh, which, alas, we still haven't covered yet. We're waiting for Aaron to get back to us. But again, it's a musical one. We have other mm-hmm. musical ones. Um, uh, see the list. Uh, but he also makes reference to uh, futurist uh, painting. He makes liter- uh, a reference to uh, the first manifesto, the founding manifesto. He also makes reference to... Um, Uh, the earlier literary ones. So this is very much a a work that recognises... It's pedigree. Yeah, Yeah. and the whole holistic framework. This is, it's no longer, he's starting to try to, it's almost a glue. This is a cement one. There is a a strong sense of cement because he begins, the first sort of one or two sections are all about this general futurist sensibility. A lot of it is a rehash. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's just restating things like, you know, the... The modern age that we're living in, machines, speed, etc., uh, uh, etc., et love of war, blah, blah, blah. But then he's just trying to tie it in to these other works. Um, in terms of this, uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that he is actually much softer in this one. Um, although, although then after the declarations, mm. I think almost all of which we have in some mode or another covered. 
Yes. Um, I, I don't really see any of them that are... I, well, may, maybe the... Maybe a few, yeah. Maybe I'll, the most... Yeah, there's there's a few... Uh, some in which he, he, he might almost even kind of of not be that disrespectful to women. I know. He might even be... Well, I guess for Marinetti, a feminist for him. Yeah. And only for him. But, well, uh, because uh, see, we've only got explicit but declarations. But of course, first before the, the declarations, after, after yeah. them... Yes. Uh, before, after them... Then, then he has some slightly more meaty paragraphs about the subtitles of the manifesto: words yes. and freedom, the death of free verse, the wireless imagination, um, and then he speaks death about of the literary the de- yeah, death, death of the, of the literary, literary eye, eye, the semaphoric adjective, or the ad- ad- adjective lighthouse, or atmosphere adjective, the verb in the infinitive. Onomatopoeia and mathematical signs, typo- and the typographical revolution, multilineal lyricism, free expressive orthography. Yeah, um, it's uh, which I think it is almost more technical than the technical manifesto in its in that he he does give you techniques and reasons for being for for many of these new forms that he's going to be exploring. Very much so. If you uh, haven't listened to the uh, preceding one, I would recommend you listen to the preceding one because a lot of this will build upon that and actually kind of restructure them a little bit. As I say, he's much softer. Um, For those of you who have heard it, you will recognize some of those things like words in freedom and his issues with free verse, wireless imagination, death of literary eye. But some new ones. He's got this semaphoric adjective introduced there. He also explicitly brings in onomatopoeia, even though he was always using it earlier, but he just never sort of, he didn't make it explicit. And we've got the typographical revolution, multilineal lyricism, and free expressive orthography, which he has made no reference to previously. This is, mm-hmm. this is new stuff, even though he's been sort of looking at it. So we have him moving further. Um, so it's a strange one. He pushes things further uh, and refines his view, but also softens quite a few things. Just to give you a little bit of a sneak peek, he'll actually say that uh, when it comes to things like syntax, like adjectives, like adverbs, yes, okay, you can sometimes use them. That's, whereas before, it was a blanket. No, never. Mm-hmm. Leave them alone. Leave them alone, Ariel. And I guess that's because... Uh, He's seeking to address a different audience and a different, I guess, um, use case, I guess, to use that expression. Um, Having heard many of the objections to the previous manifestos, um, namely that it's impossible to communicate any meaning whatsoever, um, and that it would be very, very difficult to do anything but the type of experimental poetry he's doing, uh, he concedes, okay, fine, you might need a few adjectives uh, and adverbs and connectives and forms of syntax. Even I need them for my wonderful manifestos, he says. Um, but he still wants to move us away from them as much as possible. Mm. Or at least explain why they're they're insufficient and an active hindrance to... Um, the the free flow of what's the word here lyrical intoxication that is yes. a poet's main purpose yeah. lovely when you're caught in the you know in this in the midst of this lyrical intoxication is using this very dionysian or dionysiac uh, 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 you know terminology He's thinking that when you're actually in the state of this flow and this writing, that it is as if you've been bewitched or as if you're uh, controlled by a god. It's, 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 a, it's a state of, of being uh, controlled. Um, you're overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, just nice to see that he makes this quite explicit. Um, yeah, it is. He's not much of a craftsman. Uh, he's thinking that it actually just sort of happens. And yet, obviously, so much is a craftsman because he even sees what bits you need to use and what bits you need to get rid of, hence all of the technicals. Yeah, he seems to be running up against craft, I guess. So, how, how do you want to carry on? 
Well, uh, I think uh, rather than uh, read out, because uh, he only gives these explicit declarations for this future sensibility, a lot of which, as you rightly say, is uh, repeated from other ones. There are a few that are slightly different and perhaps worth pausing on. Yeah. Uh, so out of 17, uh, I think we'll look at about five. Um, uh, so fire away. Uh, yeah, uh, just a nice one just to begin with, a little bit an easy one. Four, destruction of a sense of the beyond and increased value assigned to the individual who wants to vivre sa vie, to use the phrase of Bonnet. Mm-hmm. Would you like to help my terrible pronunciation there? Uh, vivre sa vie, so just to live, live their life. Yeah. Um, and apparently Bonnet was a... Robin Hood style. Yeah. I remember. I, mean, I, w- I was going to say, um, maybe if not Robin Hood... Kind of a John Dillinger type, but yeah, um, who killed some people and then died yeah, in, d- a, yeah, in exactly. a shootout. Yeah, um, but uh, just nice to see that we've got this word, you know, a s- destructive sense of the beyond, uh, and then just this increased value to the individual. So he's not he's not actually thinking that it's better off for a society and things like that. We've got that individualistic. No, and so here, for those of you that heard last uh, the last episode. Hmm. Um, we touched on a, I guess, gathering sensation or gathering feeling that there is a profound dissatisfaction or a malaise at the core of futurism, um, kind of a, a, of a vacuum of some sort that they're trying to in some way fill or, or deal with. And I think this is a, a very clear um, exposition of at least some of that vacuum. I mean, there is a destruction of a sense of the beyond. Mm. Now, you can read that as we want to destroy this sense of the beyond or as the sense of the beyond is completely gone. I mean, these are... This is something that's happened. And there is a a question of what, what do you do now? If your life is no longer in any way moved by those senses of the beyond or these mystical things, then what? Well, well, perhaps it's also good to team number four with five and six. Mm-hmm. So number five is human desires and ambitions multiplying and going beyond all limits. And then six is an exact knowledge of everything inaccessible and unrealizable in each person. So I think they very much have to work in this kind of uh, trifecta there. Yeah, these are... They do, they do. But I think I think that goes some way of, of identifying kind of the, the malaise. Yeah. And it's it's a kind of a profound malaise, um, maybe at the core of most 20th century projects to, to find meaning or large-scale 20th century movements. I mean, that's a, a very, very deep one. Mm. And I think it animates... A lot of art. Now, with the futurists, it's also... I guess art is one of these things that's meant to to save one from from this malaise, from this hole that has been left by, I don't know, presumably the death of religion or something at, at some point. Well, no, as I said, uh, last one, I think it could, also, it could also just be like, uh, if you see something enough, mm-hmm. you just get tired of it. The familiarity breeds content. The joke isn't funny anymore. Mm-hmm. It used to be. No longer, because I think it's, with the futurists, it's especially good to team it, this, this sense of the malaise, when they're talking about their great adoration, but also their simultaneous great hatred for all these great writers, musicians, painters of the past. You know, they, you know it's, it's terrible. They have this great, it's, it's almost as if they're, you know, it's undermining that they, they so love them and yet so hate them. And... Yeah, well, I think, I think that's... I think that, that's, that's the secondary malaise. I mean, you have the first, the first deep one, the sort of yawning existential void that seems to, to have opened up once mm. conventional ideas of, I don't know, of, of God and a good life have vanished. And art is kind of classically meant to fill that void in some way. It's meant to give one meaning. It's meant to fulfill one in some you, important yeah. way. And... and Maybe you've seen the painting one too many times. Then what? Hmm? So it's a, 
It's it's interesting. And, and why the great love solution? of war if you're looking for a thrill to prove you're alive, or if not to die? Right. Well, I losses. Think, I think I think they start to to sour on kind of the Apollonian because we're being very Nietzsche mm. Nietzsche this week, um, and just go for for a straight shot of Dionysus in your blood, you know. And that would be an explosion, like literally war, you know, I guess. Could also be, a, a, you know, a drinking party. Could be. Or theatre, god mm-hmm. of theatre as well. Yeah. But I, I think that's, that's sort of the malaise. But anyway, that's been a mm. digression. Um, and then, uh, so Seven is the one where, yeah, we get Marinetti offer this one pithy throwaway line. Number seven, semi-equality of man and woman and less inequality in their social rights. This comes from the man who has written a a manifesto called Contempt for Woman. Mm -hmm. And he repeatedly says that he's got issues with women, even in the original manifesto. I don't think I've ever read a more begrudging acceptance that women have (laughs) or have have, uh, equal, equal or, quote, semi-equal. Right. That's amazing, isn't it? He's talking about this is the future of sensibility. God, he's like he's you, being dragged yeah. along. He's like, fine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, uh, so, yeah, it's not developed here any further than that, but it's just an interesting little point that we, we get it straight from the mouth of Marinetti, or straight from the pen. And eight, contempt for love, sentimentalism or lechery, produced by greater freedom and erotic ease among women and by universal exaggeration of female luxury. He goes on. And then there went, there went that slight endorsement. For no, wait, it's a little bit more than that. <laughs> it's a bit more than that. Uh, because uh, I think there is something that we can really uh, touch upon that uh, he, he's seen, that there is a little bit of a change in terms of... It, this is almost like it's a, a kind of proto-consumerism. I, I'm going to suggest. Right, which he associates with women exclusively. Uh, yes, but I think in some ways this will be... Because uh, uh, he's, he's not going to think buying a car is luxurious. That's a necessity. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if you're, well, if you're going to afford to buy a car, you've probably got a decent amount of money in those okay, days. a gold car. If you can fly a plane... Uh, buy a, go- a gold car. No, any car. No, this no. is nineteen ten. He'd he'd view one, I think, as superficial and ornate and traditional. I think somehow. as long as it's driving fast, he'll be happy. But that's a necessity for him. It's not going to be True. a luxury. Whereas anything else, uh, at least at this point, there are manifestos on fashion, on men's fashion, and uh, and on food, and eventually we will get to those via other means, but which are very interesting. But, um, yeah, he's, he puts forward here this idea that actually we've moved away from this kind of romantic notion that love and, uh, and a kind of deep passion, um, uh, mental and physical, is, is this relationship. Love is gone. What's, what's interesting now? Luxus. Luxury. That's what's wanted. It's this very specific thing. So he then goes on. Let me explain. Today's women love luxury more than love. A visit to a great dressmaker's shop, escorted by a banker friend, who is paunchy and gouty, but will pay the bill, has taken the place of some hot rendezvous with an adored young man. The element of mystery once found in love now resides in a selection of an amazing outfit, latest model, preferably one with her friend, which her friends don't have yet. Men no longer love a woman who is without luxus. The lover has lost all prestige, and love has lost its absolute value. A complex question, one which I only touch in passing. So he even says that men no longer. It's not just about women. Men no longer are interested in love either. If she didn't have, like, a Fabergé egg... (laughs) Yeah, this is is strange. It would have been interesting to look at this in the context of the the lust manifesto, um, because... I really find nothing interesting here. I, I, don't, I don't in the in this specific in this one. It just seems kind of his usual resentful self. Okay, I will say a little bit more then mm-hmm. because uh, this is I find it interesting. I think because you've got fashion changing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is actually a radical sh- uh, shift in terms of uh, haute couture and just women's general fashion uh, in the early 1900s. Before then, since the Renaissance, more or less. The corset and uh, really 
and more generally, a lot of clothes were, were, were cut or made in such a way where the waist was what did the lifting. That's mm-hmm. where uh, a lot of the pressure was. Whereas then after about 1903, beginning in 1903 with uh, Paul Poiret, uh, who uh, you know, introduced this new fashion, originally the Confucius coat, mm-hmm. it has a cut which it then starts to, it's without a corset, and it's more or less sort of weighed down via the shoulders. And what's, and this, this, one, what's this one called again? Uh, the Confucius coat. The Confucius coat. And this is Paul Poiret in 1903, he introduces it. And then in 1906, he introduces the Hellenic style, which is a high-waisted garment. Again, a lot of the pressure is going to be put on the shoulders. It doesn't come from the waist. And so this is, this is a major change, uh, where before you've got like doctors and uh, uh, you know, early feminists and you know, just a lot of women themselves not really pleased with these corsets being a bit too much. And you know, the second they got in, they would take them off really mm-hmm. around the home. Suddenly, a fashion designer comes along, and I looked at this. Uh, I looked this up. Paul Poiret wrote in his sure. like memoirs about why he did this. It wasn't because he wanted to set women free from a corset. It was because he was just interested in defining a new style of beauty. Yes, that um, makes sense. But so you have actually got shifts there, and uh, more and more um, uh, haute couture is being made available to more women instead of just rich aristocrats and, and the wealthy, even the new wealthy. Um, I so guess there are I guess what I just, yeah, no, Fabergé is, is also coming. This is the age of Fabergé as sure, well, even is, though there are only about 60 of these things. This is true. I, I mean, I, I wonder exactly... I, I guess he's not into luxury particularly. I'm sure he'd be more of a functionalist. Yes. Stripe. He sees it as functional. But, but the... Um, I guess as long as it's able to inflame your passions in some way, then it would be good. But not the passions of lust for him. N- no, no, those are Valentin de Saint-Point is happy yes. with it. But the... I guess, I guess the, the issue is... He sees a contempt for love um, as if there hadn't been one before in some other way. I, 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 I don't see it. I, I just don't see it. I, this, this one doesn't seem accurate. But suddenly I think a contempt it's a- for love because women like fancy things. And back back in the day, they didn't. They used but then to, also, also men. They used to enjoy... Men yeah, have sure. also their tastes have changed. Yes, everyone just likes fancy things. Yeah, and not like which is love why I past. say it's, it's kind of I think that you can read into it a kind of proto early. Yeah, but they love consumerism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but one, one can can read that into the eighteen hundreds too and the late eighteen hundreds. With difficult, it's not as it's not as popular in terms of you know with these people, especially given these new shifts and things like that. I guess what well no, I, I think it was the the difference would be rather that. Maybe there are more people that have more income now, and therefore they can also engage in some kind of consumerism. And so the masses become consumeristic, but it's not that. It's just that the masses have a little more money to spend mm. and yeah. things to we're, buy. Well, we're we're post-industrial yeah, revolution, yeah, I, I, and we're also 100 years after you know, these romantic ideas of running off and getting married for the sake of love rather than for a, a, a set-up match or for mm-hmm. political or wealth or or any kind of social... No, you've got these people sure. who are running off to get married in secret out of love. That's, you're 100 years after the fact, and we're post-industrial revolution. I think there is a sense in which, yeah, we've got the introduction of the consumer, and I think that's what it is. It's this, the luxus, this luxury, is going to be a very particular kind of thing there. Which he disdains, yeah. Uh, you know, he doesn't explicitly disdain the luxury. He doesn't say that he explicitly disdains it. He just disdains love. But also, he's also, <laughs> but he's also saying this is not how we should be. He thinks that this is how people are. This is a descriptive sure, point. He thinks is. that actually a lot of people are just like this today. Hmm. They take it all for granted. They are just going at 100 miles an hour. They are always, they are miserable with things that are old. Mm-hmm. And when you give them novel things... There is, I, I do agree that there is also a slight prescriptivist stance in this. He's mm-hmm. kind of at the same time. But yeah, at, at face value, it is a descriptivist uh, thing that he's doing here with the semi-equality and things like that. He thinks he's describing what people are like. Mm-hmm. But also that was just an excuse to mention Paul Poirier. I know, I know, I know it was because, yeah. I've got a few other ones that we'll mention later that yeah. I'll, I'll manage to put in. You managed to... Mm-hmm. Hey, but you know, we talked about like you know what, what's the in. status of uh, of you know uh, poetry of uh, literature. Why not put in this a little bit about fashion early on? 
Especially if, you, if it mentions luxury in there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so here the only yeah. other one I, I I wrote down is uh, number sixteen. Disgust for the curving line, the spiral, and the tourniquet. Love for the straight line and the tunnel. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The straight line is faster. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he's not happy with meandering. It's too decorous and uh, and uh, jovial and uh, exotic. This is the kind of meandering sure. decoration. That the he love hates. of speed, abbreviation, and synopsis, and that's very true. People yeah. do love. Quick, tell me the whole story synopsis. in two words. He writes. <laughs> I, 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 I've got down the one before that. Fifteen, though. Mm. 15 is, I think, a brilliant one, especially if you read it today. Um, uh, so just a, a few s- sections from it. The earth, the earth shrunk by speed. New sense of the world. Let me explain. Men have successively conquered a sense of the house, the neighbourhood in which they live, the city, the region, the continent. Today man possesses a sense of the world. He has only a modest need to know what his forebears have done but a burning need to know what his contemporaries are doing in every part of the globe. Whence the necessity for the individual of communicating with all the peoples of the earth? Whence the need to feel oneself at the centre, to be judge and motor of the infinite, both explored and unexplored, a gigantic increase in the sense of humanity and an urgent need to coordinate at every moment our relations with all humanity? Now, if that isn't social media and the internet, <laughs> about a hundred years earlier... <sighs> Is yeah. it not? Sure, yeah. People, I need to know, I need to know. What about someone who was before you? Oh, I don't know, that was before I was born. Mm-hmm. How flippant and trivial. But yeah, that's been... Um, and then he talks about newspapers. Yeah. Also. Do, do you like his description of the, the newspaper? Yeah, love was great. Uh, what was it? Hold on, find it, find it. Because it, he talks about like you can read it with anxiety. <laughs> so you're miserable whilst reading a newspaper. How apt. But, but he's right, yeah, it's now people have the uh, the ability to get really, really anxious reading the newspaper in their quiet, uh, yeah. you know, but yeah, rural he, getaway. He's you know. seeing like a globalized uh, community. It is it is people that, that, that can find out about things that are happening across tremendous distances and that we really care and we have to judge we have to have our own thoughts and opinions about it by means of the newspaper the inhabitant of a mountain village can tremble with anxiety every day following the Chinese in revolt the suffragettes of London or New York Dr. Corell or the heroic dog sleds of the polar explorers yeah yeah obviously things that were all happening at the time obviously things that were all happening at the time yeah but again this is this is your usual futures fair yeah. No, um, but don't you... It's, mm-hmm. But this idea that actually, yeah, people are more interested and actually they have to be judged. Mm-hmm. The individual has to be at the centre and they have to judge what is happening in other countries, in other places, in other communities. I want to know and I have to, uh, to judge it. It's very important, that. The judgment. I think mm-hmm. so. You know, when you have to feel at the centre or at least that everything is buzzing around you. But then anything that happened before you... Oh, history. But I think that's true. The, the buzzing, the buzzing is important for him. That's an essential part of his aesthetic. Yeah, especially with that line of communicating with all the peoples of the earth. Don't mm-hmm. you think that that's, you know, obviously he's not me, he's not predicting anything like that. Mm-hmm. But certainly, you know, as technology improves in various ways, it does seem that either by accident or intention, distances between people seems to shorten. They do. They, they very much do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I thought that one was especially uh, poignant yeah. to bring up. Yeah, it is. But then, uh, before we just go on to where he explicitly starts talking about literature, this is this is where he finally, you know, connects all of the. This is the cement uh, for all of the different manifestos. So these are some of the elements of a new futurist sensibility, which have generated our pictorial dynamism, our anti-graceful music, devoid of steady continuous rhythm, our art of noises, and futurist words in freedom. So you sort of, you, you get a, you know, a brief picture of how from supposedly these 17, or roughly these 17, uh, uh, principles, you actually get the whole futurist project starting up mm-hmm. and the different media and how it's executed in different media. And that is 
variously understandable mm. based on the different medias, and some of them it, it makes more sense than others. I think in in literature it makes a good deal of sense, a good deal of sense, and. In trying to make sense of that sense, last episode we asked, what was it about conventional forms that made it so difficult for the futurists, for the futurists to express themselves? I guess first of all, what are they trying to express? Mm-hmm. And secondly, what is it about conventional forms of language, even free verse, which is not as conventional in poetry, that makes it so hard to express? what it is that they want to express. What does he want to express? I'll just quote directly from the section of from the wireless imagination. Jump forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. Wireless imagination and words in freedom will transport us into the essence of matter. We last week were talking about we'll it. Transport us into the essence of, of matter. Essence and, of matter. And what does a poet do? What is a poet's role? In, in society for the futurist. Oh, I'm not sure that... It's, have you got a thought on that? I mean... Yeah, I think it was to... to inflame. It was definitely inflame. And I don't know if it was passion, but it was something along those lines. In which one? The first one, I think. In the first one, yes. He makes explicit reference to that. I was trying to remember that. But... So a poet's role is to inflame and make everyone, I guess, inspire everyone to dive headfirst into the inhospitable, metallic, vibrating, electric world mm. that we're building and that's being built. I mean, last episode we were talked about it from those last two manifestos as uh, the sensation of matter or the, the, the sensation of machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, here he puts it as the essence of matter. But uh, yeah, he goes a li- little bit further, though. Um, again, it, it's very interesting where he then goes, with the discovery of new analogies between things remote and apparently contradictory, we shall value them ever more intimately. Instead of humanizing animals, vegetables and minerals, a bygone system, we will be able to animalize, vegetize, mineralize, electrify or liquefy our style, making it live, or live rather, the very life of matter. Now, this is something slightly new because, mm. uh, you know, it was one thing to say, like, the solidity of steel had a certain thing about it. Now he's also introducing animalize and vegetize. This is almost a, a, a with the animalizers have moved back to the zoomorphic uh, 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 rhetoric mm-hmm. of the early manifestos that he then seems to get rid of. He's now explicitly brought it back. But then he's also got vegetize. What is it like to be a vegetable or to be an organic thing? Yeah, because it's easy to think what it's it's like for us to experience vegetables, but not quite the other way around. But he gives an example. Yeah. For example, and this is great. So ask yourself, listener, if you had to try to capture the sensation of, say, being a blade of grass, what would you say? How would you try to capture that? This is Marinetti's example. To render the life of a blade of grass, we might say, I will be greener tomorrow. I don't know. It's a bit lame, that yeah, one. Yeah, it's quite lame. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something great. No, no. No, it's uh, I will be greener terrible. tomorrow. His own example. It's terrible. Absolute doggerel. Yeah, no, <laughs> terrible. Uh, but yeah, then you've got electrify and liquefy, which are great. But mineralize, interesting. But yeah, so he's bringing, again, furthering these new analogies, these nets of images, uh, chains of analogies. Um, and uh, he didn't make it quite clear, but, you know, he was sort of looking at these kind of juxtaposed, almost oxymoronic double nouns um, and, and new ideas that he wanted to sort of force together. And, I, it, you know, it forms a kind of dialectic. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's also part of it. Why do you want to reject your syntax? It's because your ordinary way of thinking just won't get you to where you want to be. It's, uh, you know, what's that line from, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean, one of the movies where they say, like, you can't find it if you're looking for it. So how do you find a thing that you're not looking You have to get lost. Mm-hmm. I think that's the third one. Um, so, you know, it's not unthinkable that... And Rambo would or, do this or, as well. Uh, to, to, to put it more pretentiously, the problem mm. of the criterion. You know? Yes. It's the same thing. How, yeah. how do you find something if you don't know what it looks like? Mm. 
That's very, I like the yeah. way you said it better. No, yeah. <laughs> Surely you must already know it. Yeah. yeah. For more details, read Plato's Mino. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, and Rimbaud did the same. He was, you know, wanted to actually see what's in the abyss. You know, how do you actually find and discover something in there? You have to dive into it and lose yourself. You have to get rid of this. You know, your ordinary. Yeah, he intellectual mind. The, the, the closest, the closest I came to to him um, explaining this is he he gave an analogy that the, the lyrical. <laughs> Uh, yes, here, here it is. It's in, it's in, um, it's in multilineal lyricism, mm-hmm. uh, and he, he he gives these reasons. And so uh, later, poets came to feel the differing moments of their lyrical intoxication required commensurate breadth of various and unexpected lengths, with absolute freedom of accentuation. Thus, they arrived at free verse, yet still preserved the syntactic order of words so that their lyrical intoxication could flow down to the listeners by the logical channel of syntax. This is from free expressive uh, orthography. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but uh, it's... It's like that that whole section just before I uh, since we were into it, mm-hmm. uh, he gives a rough way of actually trying to trace the whole history of poetry thought poets began by, number one, they began by channeling their lyric intoxication with equal breaths, accents, echoes, assonances, traditional meters. Uh, you know, so, we, you know, consider things like iambic pentameter, Alexandrian mm-hmm. rhymes, like, you know, the original two six-syllable uh, hemistics, or in the UK, iambic hexameters with mm-hmm. the occasional caesura breaking it up. But what's really nice is he then says... These different breaths were measured by the lungs of preceding poets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of, I mean, it's got to and be taken as a And don't they bit. feel stale now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, yeah, so what, does, what happens with free verse? Okay, so we're no longer going to be measured by the lungs. We have to get something a little bit novel. And in our intoxication, as you say, we're going for unexpected lengths. And also, <laughs> it's not just good enough for that. We, we also need to really mess around with the accents. Mm-hmm. We need to really break it apart. And that's how we'll get the free verse. But we're still in the logical syntax. Number three, words so is freedom. But it, was, but it was really the, the, the kind of logical channel of syntax. So mm-hmm. you have this thing, which is the lyrical intoxication, which is what the that's, poet has. Yes, that's, that's... And what the poet is meant to provide to society in the futurist... But they have that at every point. Utopia. They yes. had that earlier. No, no, no. The but, poets no, who but, were exactly, of course. But that's, but that's the main thing. But the lyrical intoxication is, is, is constrained and channeled and damned. And you mm. have these, like, these, metaphor, these, these metaphors for what's happening to this lyrical intoxication. And so I see that this next step that we looked at last week of concatenated nouns without much else mm-hmm. as him breaking down the logical channel of syntax altogether. Yep. Now, whether or not it can reach anyone is, uh, is, is maybe a, a, a different matter. I mean, something must reach there. But it's... I mean, I was thinking about this and really it, it felt like... Um, it, like the next... The next... Um, Metaphor, rather than a channel and a canal of logic, if you will, was a, was a gun. Just an explosion, or if not, you know, just a complete explosion, like a fire of, of, of uh, lyrical intoxication that is just completely unguided by anything and untrammeled. And I think that's, that's kind of what he wanted. Can you say a little bit more? Yeah, so once you get rid of the logical channel of syntax, yeah. Yeah. how else do you transmit your lyrical intoxication? But I, I, it's, it's, it's strange. It, like, I, I guess I, I see the, the, it feels violent somehow. It's like the only other, the only other uh, option is, is, is more violence, right? I think more in a sense, energy, more... I think in a sense, it can be very raw and brute. Sure. It, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to add shades to it. That's the that's that's adverbs and adjectives. Yeah. Out with them. 
Far too much music they convey. Mm-hmm. Far too much exposition. No, 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 no. Get rid of them. They clarify things too much. And yet, he adds these uh, adjectives, right? These... Uh, he, bring, uh, yeah, he brings Light. them back. Hold on. Lighthouse Before idea. we move okay. on, I just wanted to... Because you mentioned we're in the free expressive uh, orthography. This is one of his new contributions. The final bit is where he says... W- the next bit is... Uh, uh, with, with through our lyrical intoxication, we have to get to this words in freedom, and one of the ways that we're going to do it, this is a brand new thing. He says that uh, we've already said that he's going to get rid of a lot of the syntax and just have like, so, you know these collections of nouns and changes of nouns, but he's happy to bring in, as we'll see later, a few subtle adverbs and a special kind of adjective. But he is really saying now we're going to reshape words. Mm-hmm. So the orthography, we're not going to be spelling things in standard ways anymore. If I want to say red with about a million mm-hmm. E's, I can. I can do that now. We haven't seen that before. He's making yeah. it explicit in this one. And uh, uh, he's also happy with you know uh, cutting words in half and not entirely spelling them out. And... Um, yeah, he says it matters little if a word having been deformed becomes ambiguous. And later on says, you know, it's far more important to just convey these onomatopoeic, psychic uh, 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 elements. And that, though I am not greatly worried about being understood by the masses, I will reply by noting that futurist declaimers are rapidly increasing and further. You know, he, he says, you know, perhaps it will be unintelligible. I'm not really that interested it's supposed to be slightly more intuitive. It's it's like a kind of an unknowledge, but it's not meaningless to you. It's it's of something. Mm-hmm. Some sort of sensation should be conveyed. And he wants to open up every other way to make to do that. I mean, ortho- mm-hmm. orthography kind of goes out the window a bit, um, as does conventional typography, right? Yes. Um, he yes. talks about about the this typographic revolution that he wants to make happen to break the shackles of your traditional you know, big curly Q letter at the start of a chapter and so on, and and use different types of bolding almost to form letters and, sorry, words as shapes. Yeah. Um, which are, uh, what, are the, what, what, what are their na- the, the names of poems that make an image? Uh, uh, oh. Uh, Telegrams? Uh, no. Uh, no, uh, no, 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 uh, uh, concrete poetry. Concrete poetry. Really? Those yep. are the ones yeah, like yeah, when yeah. you make a little boat out of Calligrams can also do that. Or but concrete poetry is, is just about that. Calligrams typically... Or it doesn't have to be just about that. But calligrams, a lot of the time, the image actually becomes more important than the words. Sure. Um, you've, got, Which, you've got some. You've got I do, uh, I do calligrams. But yes. so, so those calligrams... I, I think it's a little bit closer to the type of thing that, that mm. he's envisioning. Yeah, it is. Um, so I think he, he says bullet and for the word to look like a bullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's... In a way, this is similar to their their love of um, synesthesia mm-hmm. earlier. Yes, right? yes, Blending yes. the different senses into one. Kind of blending the different forms into into one. And in a way, maybe futurist music is the highest the highest form of all for them in that sense. Right? I mean, the futurist music mm. can be they've broken That's, down even more barriers in yeah, futurist music to the point of dulcet tones to the, that we were listening to. <laughs> to the point that it's now just pure noise. Yeah. You can look it up. Go on to YouTube I mean, and type in fu- Musica Futurista. Yeah, I mean, that is, I guess, oh, pure, <laughs> pure lyrical intoxication. Yeah. Although, maybe not. Maybe there, you, you do You've got need it in the paintings as well. enough shape for it to mean yeah. something. Enough shape for it to do something. But you, since you mentioned the synesthesia, let's bring up again, just to, you know, just for completeness, things like uh, Perfumo, uh, Rousselot's uh, wonderful painting that I still think is is fabulous, um, where he's you know you and only you, but yes, no, well, it's these, these rich and, and very bold colours, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and just the way that it, it sort of uh, uh, shapes and moulds around the, the figure that you've got there, the face that you've got there, you're trying to convey. This smell. How do you convey, a, a, you know, a, an olfactory element via a visual element? And that's that's what's happening now. How do you convey these different these different things through through words? And they're expanding what mm. you can do with with words. 
Since we're on the typographical revolution, let's say a little bit more, because he says, uh, he, he mocks a lot of the fancy calligraphy and things like that, and some fancy paper, which I, to some extent, agree with. As you know, we sat in a coffee shop about a year ago, and I was so angry seeing on a Sunday morning these people in a horrible coffee shop with these little, you know, saucers that didn't have an indentation in them, so they used to move all over the place, and the cups didn't have a handle, so I was very upset. <laughs> you can tell I was fuming, and it was all grey. And then I'm seeing some beardy glasses type writing on, uh, you know, with his Mac in front I of can him. See, I can see him now. Yeah, writing with his Mac in front of him on this very expensive notebook with a very fancy pen. So he's got this expensive paper, this expensive stationery. His inexpensive thoughts are being captured on it. And I was so angry, his spitty little thoughts. Yeah. I re- and I know, because I, I did sneak a peek and read some of it. And I was just, uh, terrible. Guy, yeah. who is this? I'm so angry. But then more than that, this, so Marinetti proposes instead of that, we're going to have multicolored ink on our paper. So he says and that was Booker Prize winner Douglas Stewart. No, no, I'm kidding. We'll use three <laughs> or four different colors of ink and as many as twenty different typographical fonts if necessary. I like how he caps it at twenty. Twenty-one? Yeah, well, no, no, no. I mean that would be, be crazy. Far too much. Yeah, that'd be a little ridiculous. Let's not be, you know. Cool. But no, and so uh, this. Oh, it's a shame that we print everything in black and white. And, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they print and you, you can get contemporary prints of uh, futurist work in, in multicolor. I don't know if you can. And it's interesting. It would have been interesting to see these things yeah. in um, kind of in their original state um, because he really does talk about so many different ways of bolding words for them yeah. to mean different things and to have a different impact on you. Um, well, since you mentioned that, yeah. perhaps it's good to move on to this, his other new idea. So we've had a few new ones already. He's, he's uh, saying we're going to introduce, uh, you know, we're going to break uh, spelling, essentially. Mm-hmm. We're also going to have different colors and different fonts. Now, what else? We've got the multilineal lyricism. His other great new contribution is that he's happier to have heavier and lighter typefaces. He's going to introduce a hierarchy of typefaces... Which, by the way, I think all of this is a, a huge mistake. I the think, typefaces? No, I, I think all of the stuff to do with uh, 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 making these heavier and lighter typefaces, as well as uh, changing colours and things like that, I think for Marinette this is probably quite a mistake. There was something that was very potent about uh, just the, the string of nouns. See what I mean? That, that I thought that was really little, powerful. There's something I, a I'm little baroque. There's something a little baroque to him. There's something a little weird to. And to, he says this is stripped back. But it's very much not stripped back. It's it's very aesthetic. Yeah, he's, he says about three verses. Like for God's sake, horrible. don't be full of rhetoric. He's it's, full of rhetoric. It's a little bit like his horrible lamps in his apartment. I mean, you have to remember <laughs> that is the same man. It's horrible, horrible. See our lamp. original full, episode. Full Moroccan lamps. Yeah. Um, but no, so he, he wants to say, like, if you've got... Uh, he's, he's trying to play about, instead of just reading from left to right, line by line, and, you know, the thought only continues uh, as long as uh, you've basically... Because he's rejected punctuation. It, the thought continues, or the string of sensations continue, as long as the line is unbroken beyond, say, uh, one space. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we were reading out last week from Battle, Weight plus Smell... The only the way to actually tell sort of these pseudo sentences was uh, you had these huge gaps, you had these huge spaces. It's interesting. I think. He's, I think. Uh, yeah. I, so I think. I think what. Well, m- maybe. I, mean, yeah. I don't know if you can call those things sentences exactly. No, maybe I say pseudo. Thoughts, yeah. images, thoughts, sensations, nets yeah. of images. I think unbroken what, consciousness. It, to me, what what this uh, this is a, it, it, his changes in typography are just like the uh, semaphoric adjective or the lighthouse adjectives or the, all these different names he gives them um, that are these adjectives that kind of go in Wait, parentheses we can't move on just yet. no We're no it's the same to... thing it's the same thing when i'm not moving okay. on it's the same thing hey. these are all kind of versions of stage directions that i think he's giving so he will he will say speed faster slower 
kind of directing you, the reader, as to the speed with which you should be reading, or almost the speed at which these impressions should be slamming themselves into your face. It, kind of in the same way as he, he has these, you know, boom is in bolder face than the previous one, and so on. He, he want yeah. So I'm not it, entirely sure, it, it I feel, agree. It feels to me a little, well, if it's not exactly a stage direction. No, 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 I'd sympathize with that a little bit, but it's not just like um, how you should just read the next thought. He says it illuminates the whole thing. Um, and well, illuminates the next thought, the previous thought, whatever. It's still a way, like, it's still him trying to control how it hits you. Yeah, in the face. There's, uh, that's true. That's true. But he then, which is, it, which is, which is odd. Which you, I don't know if you can do that. I don't know if you can do that to a reader, maybe to an audience member, because there's a that intermediary. But I don't know if you can do that to a reader. I think it's going to hit the reader how it's going to hit the reader. Unless, of course, the typography is so bold and strong that it does shock you. So you know, you flip a page that and is, it just yeah, says bang it the whole thing. A bit like a comic book. As, That's, yes. That has yes, impact. Yes. Yeah. But it just telling you that doesn't do anything. I, yes. With that, uh, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. There is, with the multilineal, so what he's, he's doing, instead of just reading like from left to right, uh, he's going to uh, sort of have these different thoughts, some being more almost above one another. This is why it's, I, I called it a hierarchy. He's saying that some will sort of be uh, subordinate to other ones. Or, and he gives examples. You know, he says, like, oh, if this one is like an image thing, and it's, you know, this, this nest of analogies, uh, this chain of images uh, seems to be the dominant one, and then you sort of carry on with these other ones. But they, they add something else, but they're sort of underneath it. Like, I don't know... He, I mean, he gives examples, but I don't like his examples that much, so I won't actually bother. If you, I'm going to encourage the listener to read it themselves, but instead I'll come up with one. So perhaps going back to, say, the battle, one from last week, um, if you wanted to actually have something about... Uh, perhaps you're thinking that uh, at certain points the a visual thing is going to be more, uh, uh, more important at any one time, or like there's a, you know, you've got this moment of consciousness where you're fighting away, and the visual thing, or perhaps you want to, you know, have the sound be more important, and then the visual, there are still visual sensations occurring, but maybe they're not as big as, like, you know, you've just, like, almost as if you've been deafened, um, you know, you imagine, like, a sudden huge loud noise that makes you go, like, it hurts your ears, it pierces your ears, you're still probably got your eyes open, you mm. might even be eating something or chewing on some gum, but all of these sensations are lesser, and so this is, I think, what he's trying to sort of do. He's trying to actually narrow in on different states of consciousness and, and be subtler to actually trying to capture multiple sensations at a moment. And then that's what something like multilineal lyricism will offer him uh, or it will allow him to do that as well as potentially a few other things. Yes, but he does also explicitly do what I said he does. So, for instance, he says, instead we employ very brief or anonymous mathematical and musical signs, and between parentheses we place indications. So I think my mistake is in saying that this is what the adjectives were, the semaphore adjectives. So I don't think these are the same. We place indications such as parentheses fast, parentheses faster, parentheses slower, parentheses two beat time, to control the speed of the style. These parentheses can even cut into a word or an onomatopoeic harmony. Yeah, 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 it can do that. So he does that. He does that. Also. He does do that. There, he mentioned that in the mathematical. Which science. I guess is all is all part of him trying to make a more complete or total art out of poetry. But he, so he, he he does very explicitly say that there. You're right. You're right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have to take that back. You're definitely right there about um, him saying it there. But in the actual section for. Um, uh, just actually, let's let's just go to it. No, no, no. Um, let's let's actually just take adjective. on a semaphoric adjective. Yeah, I sure. think so. I think we've more or less done um, the multilineal, right? Yeah, no, I think we have. So, what I call a semaphoric adjective, adjective lighthouse or atmosphere adjective, is an adjective separated from its noun and instead isolated in parentheses, which turns it into a sort of absolute noun, vaster and more powerful than a noun proper. So he wants to kind of turn adjectives into a new kind of noun, really. That's what they're going to function as. So, so they he... have to be a separate 
whole concept. Here's an, an example. Um, describing a voyage by sea. So a group of words in freedom describing a voyage by sea, he would place these words in parentheses. Calm, blue, methodical, habitual. It would not just be sea that is calm, blue, methodical, habitual, but the ship, its machinery, the passengers, whatever I might be doing in my very mind. Yeah, that's the bit that I really wanted to... That's the bit that I meant, where he seems to actually have something far greater in mind. Yes. um, That it can't just be about leading the the viewer on, because he even says that it it spills into all of these things, these absolute nouns, these adjective lighthouses. But it's it's still interesting. I I still think what I'm saying... I mean... Yeah, yeah, no, he says... It's it's almost... But, like, here he almost wants a a movie or or, or a, a... Aldous Huxley and Feely, you know, a kind of way of communicating a whole sensation to you in one go, a completely synesthetic experience in a synesthetic form. I, mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think so. I think, and, and, yeah, he, and I, why? He almost wants cinema. I think, but I think, uh, I almost. can't, cinema's going to make too much sense. You're right. Okay. You, you, it's it's more abstract. More and, and cinema is much more definite, right? There is something he, definite. He almost it. wants to break out of a sense of time. That's why I also like how he says uh, uh, that adjective, these adjective lighthouses, um, actually, they not only uh, push things that happen after, but also should potentially be open to pushing things earlier. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's almost like you could. Put, this is a here's a question: Do you ha- should you read futurist uh, literature from left to right and from top to bottom? Could you read it from right to left? Could you read it up and uh, from down to up? It would be interesting. Maybe you can. Maybe there's a suge- he doesn't mention anything. Sure. Manity, come on, mate. But Let's so, get on with this. So I guess I guess now that we we have these these uh, ideas about futurist literature, Th- there's one last yeah. thing I'd like to add on to that just before we do move, uh, um, which is the. Uh, why, why do this? Why actually break away from the syntax? Again, it's yeah. silly, why have this rich syntax? If you want to almost like derange the senses, uh, that's what Rambo wanted to do, to actually derange his senses to the point where he saw something new or found something new. That's how you're going to get this, or he thinks you're going to get this machine sensation or be able to vegetize, mineralize, liquefy, electrify, find that kind of sensibility. Only via... You know, these things that almost seems to, it spills out. They're not just about, you know, the ship, but it's also about the machinery, the passengers, whatever I might be doing, my very mind. And so I think that's probably quite good to always hold, keep in mind as well. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be the un, kind of un, uh, the, uh, the untrammeled um, expression that he wants. Mm. That is speed and... There's a moment in this in this one I don't I don't know where um, that he says how how this is is really very natural that if you had just witnessed something massive uh, and, and I think his massive incredible things are yeah things like a, a war an earthquake a hurricane a storm this type of thing and you see the whole vista you'd come back and you would not start with sentences. You would be spitting out nouns. Yeah. Bang, red, blood, you know. I'll I'll read out the couple Horses. Do you know what your lyrical friend will do while he is still shocked? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you've just come out of it? He'll begin by brutally destroying the syntax of his speech. He will not waste time in constructing periodic sentences. He could care less about punctuation or finding the right adjective. You know, he's got these... Uh, insistent pressure in uh, this, this insistent pressure in him, and it demands this kind of fast things because it's it's the sensations that he's got coursing through him, and so he says, "Yeah, you're not going to do that. This is what people do anyway." He thinks in the right circumstances, and then he goes further. Moreover, if they're quite well travelled and well read and knowledgeable, if they have a head full of general ideas, they might even start coughing up all of these strange parallels mm-hmm. and and uh, analogies. So he actually is trying to make a case that words in freedom is almost a natural thing that people do or intuitive thing. Well, of course, in the right circumstances. In freedom. Yeah. In freedom. 
And just as we've, we have mentioned it at the beginning, but best also mention, he does soften his thoughts on things like, we, we've said that he's got happy with a certain kind of adjective. If you put it between parentheses, you're all good. Um, but then he also says, uh, verbs and adverbs, okay, occasionally we can use them. So he does relent on that point. It's not especially rich. He just says, yes, please still use the, the verb in the infinitive, but occasionally you can use other verbs. But mainly we, we've covered the, 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 the new things that he does, which is we've now gotten these, uh, this, this uh, 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 lightning or darkening, um, your typeface, different fonts, different uh, uh, inks, uh, we're happy to use different spellings. All in all, creating an absolute nightmare for all of his future editors. <laughs> That's what he was into. Oh, what about the poor fool who's colorblind? <laughs> they actually, maybe they're the ones who actually get to the machine sensation. Maybe. Mm-hmm. If he was only writing, doing them in the other colors. So always, there's always some, well, then again, some tragic. Tragic, it is tragic. Absolutely tragic. I, was he not thinking about someone who would be reading in Braille? This podcast is a great friend of the colorblind. Yes. Um, that's why it's a podcast and not a movie. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of it overall, though? This one? I liked it. I, 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 I liked it. It, it. it gives you it gives you something to think about, and I think this whole foray into futurist literature, um, if anything, can can make for a fantastic writing exercise. Very to much, to yeah. really loosen you up, and I think it's a it's a state of creative inflammation. I think anyone would like to be in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah it 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 gives quite a bit. It's it's very interesting. It's doomed to fail. Kind of kind of doomed to fail. I think. I don't know. Because it is so... By doomed to fail, I mean, it's, it ends up being fairly inaccessible. and We don't write this way. Some people still do, arguably. I mean, we're still living in but the aftermath of the, you know, the modernist revolution in poetry. But People but are not writing in blank verse anymore. No, no, they're not. But Modern poetic media for the majority of, of, of people but a full, published. But a full novel? Boy, oh boy, go ahead and read 800 pages of concatenated nouns and see how you feel. Well, yeah, it's not happening. But it's wonderful. I mean, but it's still, it's well, still actually, wonderful hold on. massively influential. Th- yeah. Finnegan's Wake. It's not like that, exactly. But people are going, what language is it in? Sure. What language is Beckett's uh, Finnegan... Uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake in? People were, you know, already upset with Ulysses. Some people going like, oh, God, there's no punctuation in this chapter. Oh, he's using music. You've got futurists and, as we'll see also, like, you know, semi-cubists like Apollinaire and others being really inspired by this. And then Finnegan's Wake completely. You've got a whole work, an extended work. And then Beckett will also do stuff in a lot of his novels like Malone Dies and, and I think he's got a work called What, W-A-T, mm. which is it's all in code and it's so strange. And, you know, he, he, he's got prose where he's, he's writing from some aloof person well, saying it, I don't even know. No, but look, it, it certainly, it certainly. I don't even know who's writing. It this certainly revolutionized. It certainly revolutionized. Yeah. Literate. Well, I don't know if this specifically revolutionized literature, but it was I one of the many. Directly. It's starting to create of the many, a, an environment. Sure, one of the many that created it. the environment to disseminate to, to make it. But still, yeah. I think I'm still right. I think it did not fundamentally change literature into its 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 specific strictures, but made for something very interesting. Well, I think also he was wrong in thinking that um, by using things like automatic writing, which he doesn't quite say, but he talks about like, you know, getting into this intuitive state and this lyrical intoxication. What is your hope? It's to get to this machine sensibility. Yeah. As we said last week, Dada and Surrealism, they move in different directions. Today, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing, seeing things very differently. In art, there's a sense in, in visual art, there's a sense in this. When you look at abstract mm. expressionism, the loss of the subject to try and produce something that's entirely formal and to just bask in it. Yeah, it, it, it is very, very, very early. And very early he does, 
he does things that all of these different movements will try to do in one way or another um, with varying degrees of success but mm. yeah I, that's what I think of it yeah. and so I think we both feel the same way about this young uh, young student at the time in his coffee shop mm-hmm. with his coffee and uh, absinthe as always reads this and the first thing that I think we're, we're doing is doing some writing exercises we're using this as a, as a stimulus yeah yeah I think so but this would not be the final work no <laughs> God, you no. might produce something interesting no who knows who knows mm-hmm. but I think that can uh, draw this episode to a close mm. thank you very very much for listening we hope you enjoyed it and uh, see more information in the description. And I think next week we'll be looking at some theatre. Mm-hmm. We are drawing futurism. to a close yeah. with futurism. And we'll take a step back to cubism. So stay Only tuned. to then take a greater step forward. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe beyond it. Thank you very much for listening.